If you have a Bible, open with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. There's Bibles there for you if you need one back there on that table. 2 Peter chapter 1. Today we are, we are finishing up our series, um, our nine-week series. It's been nine weeks on the fruit of the Spirit. Next week is our church's sixth birthday, if you can believe it. It's going to be great, right? Yeah, give the Lord a hand for that. Uh, also, to, uh, on next Sunday, it's, it's going to be great. We're going to have one of our uh, church members share her uh, a really powerful, beautiful story of redemption and of transformation. So really hope that you can be here for that. I mean, that's part of, that, that's, that's what we're doing. That's what this is all about, is that we believe that we are flawed and broken people and that we need grace and forgiveness and transformation. And so we, we celebrate that uh, together. We um, are, are eager to share those stories. So we're going to do that next week. I'm very, very excited. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Self-control doesn't really feel like a, a very fun one, right? It's kind of like patience. It feels like more work for us to do. Unlike maybe love or joy or peace. <clears throat> now we've mentioned every week that this, this is one fruit with many different aspects. If you've been with us, you've already seen that these different aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, they blur into one another, they overlap <clears throat> with one another because they, they comprise a unified whole. Love produces joy, right? Patience produces kindness to another person. Self-control results in gentleness with one another and so on. This has been, I don't know about you, I know for some of you because I've talked to you, but this for me has been a particularly uh, convicting series uh, and a particularly encouraging series as well for me personally. I, and I've enjoyed hearing from many of you about your experiences um, with this series. I know that it's, it's been powerful for many of you, so it's been a joy just to kind of uh, journey together through these different aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. And I'm hopeful as we come to the end of this series, I'm hopeful that we would be, uh, that we would be individuals, that we would be a church, that Redeemer would be a people uh, in which the fruit of the Spirit is prayed for, in which the fruit of the Spirit is, is cultivated, um, that it's celebrated and, and hopefully contagious, that it begins to transform the city. I need it in my own life. And our, our world needs it from us, from God's people. Let me read this passage for us from 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter, one of the, uh, obviously, apostles in Jesus' inner circle, he says this. He says, his divine power, God's divine power, this is kind of wordy, but follow along with me. This is great. God's divine power has granted to us all things. All things that pertain to life and to godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and to his own excellence. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, through those promises, we may become partakers of his divine nature. He's sort of bringing us into himself, bringing us into his family by his power, not by our power. Having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. He says, so for this very reason, make every effort 
Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and your virtue with knowledge and your knowledge with self-control and your self-control with steadfastness and your steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. And listen to this, church. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. That's what we want, right? We want to be effective. We want to be fruitful. We want to do well what God has called us to do. He says if these, are, if these qualities are yours and they are increasing for you, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. God, I pray that you would help us remember that we have been cleansed from our former sins. God, I pray that you would help us not be so uh, nearsighted, that we would be blind. But God, as we sang before, that you would be our vision, that we would, uh, compelled by the power of your spirit, God, because of your great love and mercy to us, that we would make every effort to cultivate these aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. God, we thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've done, as we've done each week throughout this series, it's, it's critical for us to define our terms. It's critical for us to make sure we're all really talking about the same thing when we go through love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. So for this morning, for self-control, here is the definition that I'm going to give to you guys um, that I think works well for how the Scripture defines Self-control. Here it is on the screen. Self-control is the spirit-empowered ability. That's key, right? The spirit-empowered ability to master our passions and our pleasures so that we can be free. You follow me? Self-control is the spirit-empowered ability to master our passions and our pleasures so that we can be a free people. The, the word that Paul uses here in Galatians and that's used uh, elsewhere as, as it references self-control is actually two Greek words uh, that are put together. It's inkratia. Inkratia, which, which means uh, the in means in, inside of. And, and kratia or, or kratos means power or strength or might or dominion like democratic means the rule of the people, right? Autocratic means self-rule. So this idea is this rule, this power, this strength within. That's what self-control is. It's, it's strength on the inside. It's power on the inside. It's dominion on the inside. It's not about how much you exert yourself on the outside. It's what's going on inside. It's used in the context of mastering our passions and our pleasures. And I say passions and pleasures because part of what I'm trying to do is draw a distinction for us uh, between sinful things or behaviors and non-sinful things and behaviors. Because both need self-control, right? Both our passions and our pleasures. But some things don't need to be managed in our lives. They need to be killed, right? So I think about, uh, for example, pornography. P pornography is destructive and deceitful all the time and so we exercise uh, we, we exercise in restraining ourselves to avoid it altogether right and yet yet sexual intimacy within marriage is a joy and a blessing it's a gift from God 
ice cream, right? We're bluebell people. Ice cream is great. Ice cream is a gift from God. Ice cream is a joy to consume within reasonable bounds, right? Some of you think, no, we're here. We're in bluebell country. There's no such thing as reasonable bounds. Or it's all reasonable, right? But if we eat a carton of ice cream for dinner every night, it's deadly for us. It's deadly for us. Some of you are getting close already, right? This has been your pattern. One writer says, self-control is the ability to stay within God's reasonable bounds. He's, he's, given, us, he's, he's given us his great love in these gifts, in these pleasures that he's given us, and yet he's given us limits. He's given us limits. He's given us love, and he's given us limits. And so we, we exercise self-control. Here's how this looks, I think. We exercise self-control against making the intolerable things tolerable. So there, there are things in our lives that, that don't need to just be managed. They need to be removed. We, we have self-control against making the intolerable things tolerable. But that's not all. We're also called to exercise self-control against making the good things in our life the ultimate things in our lives. Whatever those things are for you, whether it's, whether it's your job or career, your money, your, your relationships... We say, these are really the most important. These are the ultimate things for me. These are the things that give me ultimate joy and, ultimately secure, and ultimate security. It's making the good things the ultimate things. And, and it's in self-control against making God's gifts that he's given us into God's themselves. And the things that we bend our knee to those things and say, I'm going to let this thing in my life govern me. Self-control is exercising dominion. It is governing our passions and our pleasures, both internally, right? This is both internal and external. It's both internal as we think about um, how many of us need to exercise self-control with our emotions, with our thoughts, where we let our minds go. And many of us need to exercise, all of us, really, for both of these things. We need to exercise self-control internally in our heads, but also externally with our Outward appetites for food or for drink or for sex or for entertainment or you name it, right? God is calling us to a place of love and of limits. Some of you guys uh, maybe know about this test, very famous test. In the 1960s uh, and early 70s, there was a, a researchers got together and they performed a series of psychological experiments on children at, uh, in the nursery at Stanford University uh, began in, the 19, in, in 1960. This experiment was known famously as the marshmallow test. Have you guys heard of that? Um, my wife has a slight background, so I get these kind of stories uh, regularly. Uh, this marshmallow test was very, very simple, right? Here's what they would do. They would gather these kids in from the nursery at the school. They would bring them into a room, uh, and the room was very simple. There would just be a table and a chair, and they would set the kid on the chair and say, and I may have a picture even of, you know, at least a rendering of this, right? Poor little girl. They would set this child in the chair, and they would say, and on this table would be a treat. 
It would be a, a marshmallow or a cookie or an Oreo or a pretzel or something that that kid wanted. So they would, they would be brought into this room. They would be seated in this chair. They would see this treat right in front of them on the table. And the researcher would tell the child, um, you can have any of these treats that you want. Or you can have this one treat, that's that, this particular treat that's seated in front of you. Um, but I'm going to have to go away for a minute, and I'm going to come back, and if you wait until I get back, you can have two, right? So the kid is, you know, there's a conundrum at this point. They're thinking, okay, I can, I can either have this marshmallow now, or if I exercise some self-control, if I wait a little bit, I get two. I get two. Well, most of the kids gave in, unfortunately, right? I mean, can you blame them? Most of you would give in, even if you're looking at that picture. Um, but 30%, 30% of these children, they waited until the researcher came back, and they finally got there too. They were rewarded. It's interesting that in, in follow-up studies of this particular test that was carried out uh, over about a decade, or maybe more than a decade, uh, in these follow-up studies, the researchers, and they've been still researching that ever since, and the consequences. Researchers found that the children who were uh, able to wait longer, those, that group of 30% that were willing to wait on the researcher and be given two instead of settling for one, those who exercise self-control, they as a group went on to, for example, the New York Times reported a few years ago, to have higher SAT scores. They were thinner and in better shape. They earned more advanced degrees in their education. They used drugs less frequently. They coped better with stress, and on and on and on. The, the, the benefits, there were all kinds of benefits to self-restraint, to delayed gratification, to self-control, right? And at the time, the, the psychologists, they've sort of learned uh, since then that this wasn't exactly happening, but at the time, the, the psychologists assumed that the children's ability um, to exercise self-control, the child's ability to wait, really just depended on how much the child wanted that marshmallow. You know, the ones that could wait, the ones that waited until the guy came back so that they would get two, they just didn't want it as much as the other kids who took the one right when they could have it. But it soon became clear as they were studying these kids uh, that that wasn't the case at all, that, that all of these children wanted this treat desperately. And so what determined their self-control? Well, the, the lead psychologist of this program, he came to the conclusion after hundreds of hours and years of observations uh, that the crucial skill was, and here's the word he used, strategic allocation of attention. They focused their attention on something other than the marshmallow. The, 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 the study says instead of getting obsessed with the marshmallow or the treat, the children distracted themselves by covering their eyes. Isn't that so sad? A little kid covering their eyes with a marshmallow in front of them? The children, would, would, they would cover their eyes. They would, they would literally hide under the desk. Or they would hide the treat uh, itself. Or they would sing songs about, you know, from Sesame Street or whatever. The desire wasn't defeated. It was, they were just distracted. They distracted themselves. He says, if you think about the marshmallow all the time, if you're thinking all the time about how delicious it is, you're going to eat it. You're going to eat it. You need strategic allocation of attention. The, the key is to avoid thinking about it in the first place. Now, how many of you missed these last few minutes of the sermon just because you were obsessed thinking about the ice cream and the marshmallows and the cookies, right? 
This sermon's for you. Good news, right? All you have to do is stay seated. In spite of the research, um, in large part, this is what's fascinating, in large part, ours is a culture that views self-control not as a virtue, right, but a vice. Our culture largely views self-control uh, in the negative. We see all the time that, that we revel in excess. Unrestrained sexual expression is celebrated. Unsuppressed greed is often rewarded. Unchecked speech is often given the biggest platform, right? One writer in his book, uh, Mark Sayers, in his book, Facing the Leviathan, Leadership, Influence, and Creating a Culture Storm, he says, in our day, self-restraint is considered madness. We think self-expression is the highest good, not self-control, not self-restraint. And yet the Bible repeatedly warns against the dangers of living without self-control. The book of Proverbs, the wisdom book of the Old Testament, Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, said in Proverbs 25, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. That's what not having self-control is like. We are weak without self-control. We are unprotected without self-control. We are unfortified without self-control. We, we are open to attack without self-control. One writer says, the man lacking in self-control yields himself to the first onslaught. The first onslaught of his ungoverned passions, offering no resistance, having no discipline over himself. Temptation becomes the occasion of sin, and it hurries him to a, a fearful end that he had not even considered. Have you ever been there? Have you ever, have you ever found yourself in a place, and you sort of, you know, snapped out of the fog for a minute and thought, how did I end up here? Our sinful hearts, our lack of self-control leaves us weak and leaves us vulnerable, open to the first onslaught of our ungoverned passions. Charles Bridges in his book on the fruit of the Spirit says, the person without self-control is easy prey to the enemy. And we know this, right? We've, experienced, we've all experienced that. But we see our lack of self-control leading us down the dark path, leading us to a place of confusion, leading us to a place of insecurity, leaving us weak. Billy Graham would write about self-control. There are men who can command armies and yet cannot command themselves. There are men who by their burning words can sway multitudes but cannot keep silence under provocation or anger. He says, the highest mark of nobility is self-control. It is more kingly than a regal crown and a purple robe. Tolstoy said famously, there has never been and there cannot be a good life without self-control. Apart from self-control, no good life is even imaginable. Self-control is a high wall against the enemy. For many of us, we've left ourselves vulnerable because of our lack of self-control. And we keep wondering, why do I keep falling into this? Why do I keep finding myself here? Why do I keep uh, finding myself in this same sin or this same predicament or this same relationship or this same problem or whatever, right? 
Self-control is the high wall against the enemy. It is, it is the defense against the toxic weeds that grow from our sinful hearts. It protects us. It's a grace for us. Self-control is not a shackle. It's security. It's security. One writer in his book on self-control says, true spiritual self-discipline, listen to this church, true spiritual self-discipline holds believers in bounds, but never in bonds. Its effect is to enlarge and expand and liberate the person. For many of us, self-control, self-restraint feels like a shackle. But it's not. Spirit-empowered ability. This is a spirit-empowered ability to master our passions and our pleasures. Why? So that we can be free. That's the goal. Self-control is freedom for us. I was talking to someone uh, earlier this week. I'm a part of a book club, and one guy was talking about one of the books he's read. Um, it, was, it was this book many of you guys may have heard of, Extreme Ownership. There's also a children's book called The Way of the Warrior Kid, written by uh, Jacko Willink. He was this naval, Navy SEAL for over 20 years. Um, he was a commander of the task unit Bruiser, the most decorated special operations unit of the Iraq War. And, and his books now are, are number one New York Times bestsellers. There was an article um, that it was an interview with him in a magazine I read recently, and he went on to say this. He says, while discipline and freedom seem like they sit on opposite sides of the spectrum, they're actually very connected. Some of us, we, we all want freedom, right? We all want freedom, but we don't have any discipline. He says, freedom is what everybody wants, but the only way to get to a place of freedom is through discipline, self-control. If you want financial freedom, for example, you have to be financially disciplined, right? If you want more free time, you have to follow a more disciplined time management schedule. You simply have to be disciplined to say no to the things that distract you, that reduce your freedom. Discipline equals freedom, he says, and it applies to every aspect of life. If you want more freedom, exercise self-control. And so how do we get it, church? How do we become more self-controlled people? Let me read you this passage again from 2 Peter 1. This is a great text. It's, it's complex, but it's beautiful. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God has given you all the things that you need. He's given me all the things that I need. Not by my power, but by his power. He has granted to us all things that we need that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and his own excellence. By which he has granted us now uh, uh, into his precious and very great promises so that through them we may become partakers of his divine nature. We've escaped the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desires. And so for this very reason, church, make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness and so on. And he says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind because he has forgotten that he is cleansed from his former sins. So here we see, I don't have this on the screen, but if you're taking notes with me, here we see in this passage, among other things, the call for self-control, the promise of self-control, and the path to self-control. 
a call for self-control, the promise that God gives for those who exercise self-control, and then how do we get it? The path to self-control. So here we see the, this call for self-control. It says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control. As with every aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, this is a fruit produced by Him. It's produced by the Spirit. It's not produced by us, and yet He calls us to participate in its cultivation. It is God who is doing work, and God, as a gracious Father, is calling us in alongside Him to cultivate this fruit that He is growing. And so, for example, one writer says, there are simply places we should not go. There are things we should not look at. There are things we should not do. There are relationships that we should not stay with. There are relationships we should not pursue. There are words that should not be allowed to pass from our lips. There are conversations that I should not join in. Or there are conversations that I should not hold back from. There are feelings I ought to rebuke. There are desires I should not give into. There are attitudes toward others that I simply should let go of. Self-control. It's a calling and it's a command that needs to be cultivated. Peter says, make every effort. What effort are we making, church? What effort are you making? Are you praying for these aspects of the fruit of the Spirit to grow in your heart and in your life, in your community? Are you cultivating the soil of your own life and of your own heart? Are you being obedient to the call that he has given us to be a self-controlled, virtuous, godly, and faithful people with, with brotherly love towards all? There's not only a, a, a call to self-control, but God gives us in his grace this promise attached to this call, this promise of self-control. He says, these qualities will be yours and they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. That's what I want. I don't want to be ineffective. I don't want to be unfruitful. It's not a chain around our necks. Self-control is not a chain around our neck. It's a sword in our hand, right? It's what God allows us to be defended. It's what allows us to be strong, to, to win in that battle of spirit against flesh. It's a weapon that God gives as a grace to us. How are you doing in your life? What enslaves you? Have you ever considered it? Where, where are you reckless? Where are you impulsive? Where are you self-indulgent? Do you, do you feel empowered by those things? Do you feel empowered by those appetites? which enslave you, or do you feel weaker? Do you feel more fruitful or less fruitful? Do you feel more effective or less effective? Self-control, along with these other aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, makes us fruitful. It makes us effective. And lack of self-control disarms us. What has God called you to? Have you even considered that? What, what is God calling you to? What opportunities is God giving you? Where is God leading you in your life? It's through self-control that you'll be effective in those things, that you'll be fruitful in those things. So how do we get there? 
What's the way to self-control? What's the path to self-control? It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them we may become partakers of His divine nature. We've escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. And it goes on in verse 9, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he has been cleansed from his former sins. You see what he's saying there? How do we get it? What's the path to self-control? It's by his divine power, not by ours. It's through the knowledge of him, not through knowledge of techniques. It's by partaking in his nature. It's by remembering that we are cleansed from our former sins. It's by remembering that we are free. It's hard to live free. It's hard to act free if you believe you're enslaved. This idea of strategic allocation of attention mentioned in the marshmallow test, it's interesting for me. The, the pain, the, these patient children, they set their minds on something other than what was in front of them. They could see the marshmallow, they could see the cookie, and they literally had to turn their minds away. And, and some, some busied themselves with other activities. They would play hide-and-seek or whatever. They would maybe even hide themselves under the desk or hide the treat itself. Some sang songs. They were waiting for this great reward. Now, the issue here in this marshmallow test is ultimately about willpower, Right? The issue here is willpower. It takes willpower to wait. It takes willpower when you're six years old to avoid the marshmallow that's sitting right in front of you that they said, you can have it. But if you wait, there's more. And yet biblical self-discipline, biblical self-control is something deeper. It's deeper than willpower. It's, it's not less than your willpower, but it's something far greater it's not merely ex exerting our wills, right? It's submitting our wills to Christ. There's a big difference. Self-control is not just about white-knuckling this thing and saying, I can do it, I'm going to do better, I'm going to try harder. If I just learn more, if I just do more, if I read more, if I focus more, I can do it. It's not an exertion of our will, it's a submission of our will to Christ. One writer says the beginning of self-mastery is to be mastered by Christ. It's to yield to his kingship. Jerry Bridges, again in his book, he says, Are you willing to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord of your appetites? Of Lord of your desires? Of Lord over your thoughts? Of Lord over your emotions? Are you willing to acknowledge his lordship? Are you willing to submit to his lordship even over those things? Since if self-control begins with sound judgment, it must be carried forward by surrender. It's by His divine power, surrender to the authority of Christ in every area of our lives. And so church, when you are tempted, when you are tempted to eat more than you should, when you are tempted to drink more than you should, when you are tempted to fill your mind with explicit images, when you are tempted to share your, your heart or your body with someone who is not your spouse. When you're tempted to let your temper flare, when you're tempted to dull your mind by entertainment, 
Think of Christ. Think of Christ. Remember that you are free. It's a strategic allocation of attention. You are free from being reckless. You don't have to live like that anymore. You're free from being reckless. You're free from being impulsive. You're free from being self-indulgent. You are free from the tyranny of your own destructive and deceitful desires. And so turn your eyes towards Jesus. Practice the strategic allocation of attention and exercise self-control. One writer commenting on this passage says, turn your eyes and attention away. Right, Turn it away from the marshmallow, of course, but turn it not as a mere division, but turn it to the source of true change and real power in your life that is outside of ourselves. It's not coming from within. It's coming from without. The key to self-control is not inward, but upward. Look to Jesus this morning. Look to Jesus and remember that you have been forgiven. Look to Jesus that you have been brought into his family. Look to Jesus because you have been empowered by his spirit. Look to Jesus this morning and be free.